Hello there, this is Mark Bauerline with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Carter Sneed. He's professor of law and political science at the University of Notre Dame, uh, where he also directs the De Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture. His new book, What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics, is just out, and it's our topic today. Welcome, Professor Sneed. Thanks for having me, Mark. I'm a big fan of the podcast and of your work as well. Well, thank you. Uh, so uh, the first question, you know, the subtitle implies that the body is not a prime factor in public bioethics discussions. Now, how can anything with bio in, in the title, in the word, not, not have you know, the body as, as a main, the living body as a, as a fundamental factor. Yeah, it is, it is mysterious how that, <laughs> how that came to be. Um, but that is what I found when I analyzed the law and policy of abortion, assisted reproduction, and end-of-life decision-making. In fact, it wasn't simply in researching the book that I found this to be the case, but I also found this to be the case uh, in my work uh, as the general counsel to President Bush's Council on Bioethics uh, in the early 2000s under the wonderful leadership of Chairman Leon Cass, um, <clears throat> a persistent sort of theme that, uh, that I observed and others observed was that our law and policy that touches and concerns bioethics, which in the book I call public bioethics, that is the governance of science, medicine, and biotechnology in the name of ethical goods, frequently and persistently fails to protect the weakest and most vulnerable. And, and the, the, the question for me and for my colleagues going forward was, why is that? What are we doing wrong? In, the, in, the, in this particular field of law and public policy. And the answer that I came to is the root vision of human identity and human flourishing that anchors the law and policy, as it does all law and policy, since law and policy ultimately is for the flourishing and protection of persons, was flawed. It was a vision of the person that doesn't, in fact, take the body seriously. Instead, it focuses and defines the person solely in terms of his or her cognitive capacities, and uh, more specifically, his or her desire and will, yeah. uh, and her capacity to formulate future-directed plans and pursue them in a single-minded way. It really becomes uh, an impoverished conception of the human being and of human experience. How can such a narrow definition come about? I mean, wh where does this narrow definition come from? You, you do have really a genealogy uh, in the book of some of these ideas. Where does this, you know, the individual will, you, you use the word often atomized or atomistic. What, what, is the, what is the origin of this way of thinking? So at the core of the book is, is a claim, a methodological claim that the richest way to understand any law and policy landscape, and this is especially true of American public bioethics, is to drill down and through the doctrine, through the policies, through the principles of justice, down to the, to the root level 
and ask the question of what vision of human personhood and human flourishing is assumed by these laws and policies, because otherwise, uh, otherwise the law is at best arbitrary and capricious. You could, you can't know or measure the success or failure of the law if you don't understand if it's serving persons well without knowing what it assumes a person is. And the vision of personhood and, and human flourishing that is at the core of these particular areas of law is what Robert Bella, famous American sociologist who wrote the classic 1985 classic Habits of the Heart and Charles Taylor, Catholic philosopher, have called expressive individualism. And you're right, there is a genealogy that I trace in the book drawing heavily upon Charles Taylor's work, showing that in sort of intellectual history, there's a kind of moment that begins at least as far back as Rousseau in reconfiguring the, the source of moral authority from external sources to internal sources, a kind of decisive inner voice determines is, is morally definitive. And in fact, the sources of corruption are actually external. I mean, we, we read that in Rousseau as students of political science in high school and college and graduate school. But then it kind of makes its way into the literary sphere where the romantic poets and other poets, not just the romantic poets, other poets as well, rebelled against the linearity and the harmony of their traditions and, and, and sought after the, the interior depths of their own reflection to come up with authentic, original, and transgressive uh, versions of the truth and versions of art that were challenging to the norms of the day. And But at the same time, those artists and literary figures believed in something like nature or human nature that would that would ultimately make their work harmonious or consistent with, you know, in, in a kind of universal or uniform way. But then in the 1960s, the 20th century, this kind of this quest for authenticity or originality moves into the mainstream culture and the mainstream population, as Bella found in his own social science research. He interviewed hundreds of Americans, asking them the question, sort of, who do you think you are and what do you think your flourishing uh, consists in? And what he found over and over again is that they thought of themselves as, as I say, atomized individuals, that is, bare individuals who were separate and distinct and, and the, sort of their personal reality was one of an individual, notwithstanding their relationships to others, their embeddedness in communities or families or traditions or civilizations. They, the fundamental unit of reality is the individual and the highest flourishing was expressive in kind of the same way as the romantic poets sought after, but more subjective even than that. The idea that you're supposed to define your, to, to interrogate the interior of yourself find your truth, your authentic truth, express that truth. And sometimes that truth is going to be without precedent and it's going to be transgressive and you're going to configure your future and follow your destiny accordingly. That's what it means to be and flourish as a human being under the auspices of expressive individualism. And it was no longer the realm of art artists and literary figures, but in fact, normal everyday people. That's how they came to see what they were supposed to do with their lives. And it was a, a radical departure from uh, a vision, a, a sort of an anthropology that takes that takes seriously one's role uh, as as embedded in a tradition, a family, a community, a civilization. And it reconceives of human relationships as being transactional and instrumental to pursuing those goals. And there are no fixed ends, external ends that we can take our bearings from in terms of defining what we should be or what we shouldn't be. And even the body itself, and this is the fundamental point of the book, even the body itself becomes a pure instrument of pursuing and realizing the products uh, of the will, the, the, the plans and future and destiny that we generate from inside in the will. And the reason that that's problematic, now there's something kind of intoxicating and attractive about that vision. It's rugged individualism. Americans especially are attracted to that vision of what it means to be a human being and to flourish as a human being. 
But if you reflect on it a little bit, it becomes pretty clear that it's not, it certainly doesn't apply to everybody in the human population. In fact, most people don't operate in the realm of pure autonomy where they're seeking to impose the un, their unencumbered will on the world around them. We are, in fact, vulnerable and dependent and subject to natural limits. And I argue in the book that the reason those are inextricable aspects of our experience is because we are, we are bodies. We are corruptible physical bodies existing in time. And as a result, part of who we are, the core of who we are, is a being that is fragile and dependent and, and, and mutually obliged to one another. And it actually, and from that, that sort of shared vulnerability emerged certain kinds of obligations to one another that are utterly invisible to expressive individualism. And therefore, when you ground public bioethics in the anthropology of expressive individualism, you only privilege the experiences of the very strong, the very cognitively able, the autonomous, and you leave behind the weak and the vulnerable, which is to say most people uh, certainly at, all, at certain points of their lives. And that, that makes for an unjust and inhumane framework that forgets and leaves behind the weakest and most vulnerable. So that gives us, as you say, the anthropology, sort of the, the, the presuppositions about what human beings are and what, is, what, what, is the, what are the goods of human experience, you then move into, you actually use the word genealogy in the title of something more specific, and that's the public bioethics uh, early on, and that the bioethics really came out of some scandals. What were the episodes that produced the, the this field? So in America, bioethics as a field of intellectual inquiry emerged in the late 1960s, early 1970s, in response to transformations in the practice of medicine, certain kinds of scandals. But as a field of law and policy, public bioethics emerged around the exact same time in reaction to, to a multitude of scandals involving the exploitation of the weak by the strong in the context of medical research and the practice of medicine. And I take three signal moments, three signal scandals uh, to which uh, there was a, a significant legal reaction, and, and public bioethics is maybe more than other fields a reactive form of governance. So rea it's, if there's a scandal, there's there's public backlash, there's uh, congressional hearings, or there's a Supreme Court case, and then there's a solution imposed. And there were these three signal moments that I focus on in the book as sort of emblematic of the process of public bioethics, how it unfolds, but also the substance of public bioethics insofar as the, the source of the scandals are re the result of human vulnerability, which are a direct function of our embodiment. But then the solution is grounded in expressive individualism and looks to the goods of autonomy and self-determination to try to protect people who actually can't exercise those capacities, at least not to the fullest extent. So to give you a concrete example, the two examples that I give that everybody knows about are the, the Tuskegee scandal uh, in which the, the U.S. government itself, under the auspices of the U.S. Public Health Services, went into Macon County, Alabama towards the beginning of the 20th century. And they went for the purpose of studying the progress of syphilis in an untreated state, they called it a natural history study, in this population, which had the highest incidence of syphilis, I think, anywhere in the country. This is a, a community of poor, uh, uneducated, mostly uneducated African-American sharecroppers who were suffering from not just poverty, but also from systemic racism, from, from the socioeconomic circumstances in which they found themselves. Their, their agency was dramatically diminished. Uh, through no fault of their own, through injustices and, and circumstances. And so the U.S. researchers went in there 
and they just met these gentlemen and these women and uh, didn't tell them why they were there, deceived them as to what they were doing, did not treat them, did not provide any kind of therapy for them to ameliorate their symptoms, didn't even talk about syphilis. And then later it was reported that not only that, but they actually colluded with local health authorities to prevent them from getting the most efficacious forms of therapies, which included penicillin, which became standard of care in the 19. 19- 40s. This, by the way, this, this research study lasted over 40 years. And these poor African-American sharecroppers and their families were exploited and deceived for the sake of scientific research. And it only came to light in the early 1970s uh, when a low-level researcher in the public health service discovered what was happening and, and reported it to the press after going to his superiors. And the, the rationale would be, however perverse, the rationale would be, well, if they see the progress in these people and learn how the disease progresses we can save many, many, many people in the future. Was that the idea? In a funny way, it was even darker than that. Their, their vision was for sure, they thought of themselves as doing humanitarian work, that they were going to treat people who have syphilis and in some ways vindicate the, the terrible situation. But it was even darker than that. They justified not treating these folks and lying to them and preventing them from getting care on the grounds that if they had never shown up, if the public health service had never shown up in Alabama, these folks would never have gotten these therapies anyway. They weren't making their situation worse. They were, but, but the truth is, that's the, literally, and I'm not trying to draw too close a parallel, but that's literally the same argument that the doctors at Nuremberg made uh, on, in their experiments on concentration camp victims. They said, look, we didn't put these people in concentration camps and they were going to die anyway. We were just trying to bring some benefit out of this tragic situation. But of course, they weren't passive observers. They were embracing the tragedy as their own and exploiting the tragedy and, and exploiting these folks even further by subjecting them to unconsented medical experiments, which is precisely what happened in Tuskegee. And in fact, in a funny way, that's the same argument that was made in one of the other scandals that I talk about, which is the scandal of American researchers traveling to Europe to do experiments, painful experiments on babies, newborn babies who had just been aborted, who were imminently dying because they had just been aborted. But in Scandinavia, the way they performed these abortions was by C-section, essentially. Do a C-section, remove the baby, and the baby would just expire because the baby was not viable, couldn't live outside the body. And so these doctors were going to, to these places, and because you have an intact, still-living neonate, newborn, who had just been aborted, who is dying imminently, and they said, we're going to take this situation and do some experiments on this baby, and they would sometimes extend the life of the baby by hours, subject the baby to all kinds of painful interventions that otherwise wouldn't be the case. And this sent shockwaves through the American public when it was reported in the early 1970s that the American NIH, the federal funding body for most biomedical research in the federal government, might have been funding this. There was a huge protest organized by a A high school, a local high school, led, by the way, by Maria Shriver, who later became the first lady of California, later, you know, as a a famous journalist before that, who was a pro-life Catholic high school student. She later, I think, changed her views on abortion, but she organized 200 of her fellow students to go down and, uh, and protest. And because she was a Kennedy, she was the niece of the Kennedys, John F. Kennedy and Robert F. Kennedy and Ted Kennedy. Was she Sergeant Shriver's daughter? She was Sergeant Eunice Shriver's daughter. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And, 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 you know, Sergeant Eunice Shriver were very famous pro-life advocates, founded the Special Olympics, had a very special commitment and devotion to, to children with intellectual disabilities for, because of their own family history. And so in reaction to this, Ted Kennedy, the Senator Kennedy, convened hearings on public bioethics. They were the first hearings in the 1970s. This was one of the issues he took up along with Tuskegee, along with the third scandal, which is the scandals that were documented by Harvard anesthesiologist Henry Beecher, documenting 22 different studies by the most elite research agencies in the world, 
Ivy League schools, the federal government and others who, again, exploited the weak and vulnerable for the sake of biomedical research, important research with it wasn't frivolous research. It was for good ends, but basically did things like uh, here's an example, injecting hepatitis into intellectually disabled children in the Willowbrook institution, injecting live cancer cells into the dementia patients of the New York chronic Jewish disease hospital, uh, not, not securing meaningful informed consent from the guardians and proxies of these vulnerable individuals. And, uh, and again, that sent shockwaves through the um, American public and, these hearings convened by Ted Kennedy took up all these questions. And in fact, at that hearing as well, the doctors who traveled to Scandinavia to extend the lives, even if briefly, to do painful experiments on these just aborted babies made the same argument that doctors in Tuskegee did. They said, look, we, we did, this baby was dying anyway. We just wanted to get some benefit from this, this situation that we didn't create. When, of course, again, they embraced the circumstances and, and extracted and exploited the babies further. So it's a, a recurring argument in public bioethics. That I'm not making matters worse argument. We saw that even in the context of embryonic stem cell research, the issues we worked on in the President's Council on Bioethics. But back to your question, the fundamental, the fundamental meaning of these three signal events is, A, it shows that how the scandals themselves emerge from exploitation of individuals who are who are diminished and incapacitated because of some defect in their embodiment, whether it has to do with being a newborn baby or whether it has to do with ha having an intellectual disability or whether it has to be, you know, you live in a conditions of systemic racism and poverty. I mean, that's, these are all circumstances that diminish the agency of individuals. But the problem is the solution, the legal solution, and here's where we see the anthropology of expressive individualism, was to create mechanisms of protection that are only suitable for people who can do the things that expressive individualism values. That is to process things cognitively, to formulate your will, to, to give consent, to voluntarily, knowingly, and offer your assent to certain kinds of pathways. But that's, that's not a fit and suitable mechanism of protection for people who are themselves not capable of that kind of agency because of their embodiment. And by forgetting the body, we forget those people. You discuss in the 70s and 80s and into the 90s, several court cases. I mean, Roe v. Wade and, and Planned Parenthood Casey. We'll get to that in a minute because, you, as you say, the Planned Parenthood Casey really did make a change in the orientation that went along with the, the liberty uh, issue instead of the privacy issue. But we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But in George W. Bush's administration, you, you are working on these issues. This really ramped up the necessity of developing a more clear codes of of bioethics and trying to maybe maybe make a change in in the direction who was behind this was this was this the president was this george w bush george w bush was confronted with the question of what his policy should be in terms of funding research that involves the use and destruction of living human beings at the embryonic stage of development uh, outside the body so that is ivf embryos which are living human beings at the embryonic stage of development, uh, were sought after by researchers for use in embryonic stem cell research, which involves necessarily the intentional destruction and killing of these living embryos. And it was the, it was the most hotly contested public policy question of President Bush's early presidency until 9-11, in, in which case terrorism and the, and the war on terror became the, the most important and pressing and controversial question. And so in, on, the, on August 9th, 2001, President Bush announced what his policy was going to be. And his policy, for those who remember it, uh, was to, to, to provide 
federal funding for those species of stem cell research that did not create future incentives to use and destroy living human embryos. So that means that means funding for adult stem cell research, that, that is research on stem cells derived from adult tissues, not doesn't require embryonic manipulation or destruction, and also funding for those stem, research involving stem cell lines, that is the cellular products that are derived from embryo destruction that had been derived prior to the announcement of the policy. So, but, but there would be no funding for research involving embryonic stem cells or embryonic stem cell lines derived after the announcement of the policy. And in this way, he believed that we could benefit from the past problematic practices, one would, I would say wrongdoing uh, of intentionally destroying living human embryos while uh, not incentivizing it, but benefiting from the past bad actions by declaring its wrongness and by removing incentives to pursuing it in the future. But President Bush was not a scientist. He was not a theologian, philosopher, or a lawyer. And he knew that he needed to put together a, a, a commission or a council of people who, who did have that expertise. And he looked to Dr. Leon Cass, uh, who himself was a uh, trained as a physician as well as a scientist, but had been teaching in the humanities for decades at the University of Chicago with his wife, Amy, and was just a very, very widely educated, deeply humane, interesting, open-minded, penetrating mind, just an amazing human being, Leon Casser. They don't make him like Leon Cass and Amy Cass anymore. And so he said, Leon, you'll be the chair. And Leon took over the council and did something different from any prior commission. There have been commissions that existed before from the 1970s onward that were similar at the federal level. Uh, and what Leon did is he said, we're, we're going to have a, a committee, an interdisciplinary committee of experts in different fields, including political theory, law, theology, social sciences. So these are folks like James Q. Wilson, Michael Sandel, Frank Fukuyama, Marianne Glendon, Robbie George. I mean, this is a group, this is a group of luminaries from different backgrounds. And Leon said, we're going to talk about the goods that biotechnology and biomedicine serves, the human goods, that's going to orient our discourse and our investigation, not the biotechnologies themselves. And the very first thing we did as a council was to read Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Birthmark, <laughs> which is a beautiful short story about scientific hubris and intolerance of imperfection and a lot of different interesting themes. And critics of the Bush administration went nuts. They said, this is crazy. What are we paying for? This isn't a graduate seminar. This is bioethics. But they missed what Leon was trying to do. And Leon, who has an enormous influence on me and others, my colleague Yuval Levin and Eric Cohen and others who work, had the great pleasure and honor of being on the staff of the council, sort of reoriented our thinking about how to think about bioethics in a richer and deeper way. And again, that's what I'm trying to do in this book by asking the question of human identity, human flourishing at the core of these different aspects of public bioethics. Let's go back to the 70s again. Uh, you, you spend a lot of time talking about Roe v. Wade, but also you have a very interesting section on another case decided right around that time that no one really hears about, Doe v. Bolton. What was that? So Doe v. Bolton is in some ways the single most important Supreme Court precedent for American abortion law. American abortion law is almost entirely a creature of Supreme Court precedents. There are six or seven Supreme Court precedents beginning with Roe v. Wade that set forth what the law of abortion in America is and can be and creates the very narrow space within which the political branches, the legislature, the executive branches at the state and federal level can regulate the practice of abortion. The Supreme Court, in a kind of breathtaking example of the irrigation of power without any grounding in the text, history, tradition of the Constitution, said the 14th Amendment of the Constitution passed in 1868 or ratified in 1868 to 
to remedy in part the, 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 the injustices and the shameful injustices of chattel slavery after the, after the Civil War. Part of what this amendment says is that no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And the court read into that. They said, well, implicitly, that includes a right to privacy, which includes a right to abortion, which, of course, no one believed in 1868. In fact, nobody thought, thought there was any connection between that language and abortion until the early 1970s. And it, it's a kind of a breathtaking move on the part of the court. And, it, and in doing that, it corrupted its own work. It's corrupted our politics, the practice of medicine. It's, it's been a disaster for our, for our republic, that, that decision. Whether one is pro-choice or pro-life, it, is, it has inarguably bent our shared life together in a way that is deeply unhealthy. So, um, but uh, everybody says Roe v. Wade was the most important decision, which of course says there's a right to privacy, which includes a right to abortion. Uh, and then it lays out, and this is, a, this is even further evidence of, of how crazy the decision. It says, oh, and by the way, not, not only does the 14th Amendment due process clause provide a right to privacy that's not stated, that right to privacy includes abortion, even though abortion was illegal in every state virtually uh, that ratified the 14th Amendment, and nobody thought that the 14th Amendment changed that. But also, the 14th Amendment due process clause implies this tripartite framework uh, of regulation, the trimester framework, the first trimester, there can be no regulation of abortion. The second trimester, states can only regulate abortion for purposes of preserving women's health. And then in the third trimester of pregnancy, you can restrict abortion so long as you make exceptions for the life or health of the mother. Now that changes in Planned Parenthood versus Casey a little bit, but this requirement that any restriction on abortion has to make an exception for the life or health of the mother doesn't change. That persists even to this day. And by the way, every abortion law in America pre-1973 made an exception for the life of the mother. There were, no, there were no abortion laws that I'm aware of, certainly not in 1973, that forbade abortion in cases where the mother's life depended on getting an abortion, which is a blessedly very small percentage of cases, right? But the question of what, if we have to have a health exception for any restriction on abortion, we need to know what the word health means, right? And the word health is not really defined in Roe v. Wade. It's, it, you, can, you can draw some inferences about what the court means when it says health because it talks about the burdens of unplanned pregnancy implicating not just physical health of the mother, even psychological health of the mother, but including other aspects, other burdens uh, of unplanned parenthood, not just pregnancy. So the, dis the distress of having a child who's, uh, in, in an un for an unwed mother, the distress of having a child who you can't afford, um, and so on, uh, these were all burdens that the court looked at to derive the right to abortion. But then in Doe v. Bolton, the court explicitly says, here are things that the physician needs to consider in his or her judgment as to what the health of the mother consists in. And what it said is, and it's breathtaking, it says, it says that it includes any, it's basically, and I'm paraphrasing, any aspect of a woman's well-being, not just physical, not just even psychological, but also economic and familial interests are also part of a, of a woman's health. And when, a, when the abortion provider makes a decision about whether or not an abortion is required, the abortion provider can look to these non-physical, non-mental goods of economic success and familial success in making the judgment that the woman can get an abortion notwithstanding legal restrictions in whatever jurisdiction they happen to be in. So that means if you can, and by the way, there are, and as you can imagine, there are abortion providers, Warren Hearn, for example, pioneering late-term abortionist from Colorado who developed the, the partial birth abortion technique, among others, said that he would certify under oath that any woman who is pregnant has interests at issue that would warrant getting an abortion in terms of her health, not just her physical health, 
but also her economic or familial health. So that means if you're pregnant, you can get an abortion. And that means that our law of abortion in America is the most permissive in any nation around the world, save two or three countries. And Doe licensed that. Exactly. Doe gave the content of what health means and also situated this authority to determine whether health is implicated in the hands of the abortion provider himself, who, of course, has a financial interest in the woman getting an abortion. And just to be clear, to take another step back, that definition of health, as capacious as it is, is in fact reflective of expressive individualism. Those are the goods that that allow a person to de- to devise and pursue her open future going forward. And we see that later on as the jurisprudence unfolds and and just uh, the late uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg recharacterized the right to abortion as essential because without abortion, a woman cannot stand on equal footing with man with a man, uh, pr- pursue the same forms of sexual expression, and at the same time pursue an equal standing with respect to her economic or social flourishing. And abortion was the thing that she needed to guarantee that freedom, which again is the freedom of expressive individualism. The book is What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body and Public Bioethics. There's much more uh, in the book, fascinating material about the cases, about the going up through the Obama administration, where we are now on many issues. Uh, Professor Carter Sneed, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.